Hi, folks. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Shao Nandi. I'm CIO of Dow Jones, and I work for uh, News Corp as our head of shared services as well. We're going to talk to you a bit about what we're doing with CloudFront and how we're protecting ourselves from DDoS attacks, traffic spikes, application layer threats. Um, and we're going to cover this in a couple of ways. First, I'll tell you a little bit about Dow Jones. Uh, we're going to talk about our usage of Shield and why we pick Shield as a product to help protect us from DDoS. Doug and Lee are going to talk about CloudFront and what it meant for us to get there, what some of the pitfalls and challenges are, our migration to ALBs, and finally, a little bit about what we've been doing with Lambda on the edge. So just so you know who's speaking, um, Doug Ryder, he's our head of consumer engineering. He runs all of our development and engineering shop, basically, for all of our consumer products. I'll tell you a bit about them. And Lee Cookson, who's one of our senior DevOps leaders, one of the folks out there actually getting this work done. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Dow Jones. So I'll quote our CEO. Our mission is to deliver valuable news information from the first flash to the last word. Great little bullet. What does that really mean? Well, we're a 135-year-old company. Um, what we're probably best known for is the Wall Street Journal, relatively self-explanatory, well over a million digital subscribers, uh, provide content and news in countries all around the world. We also have a very large B2B business. Uh, Factiva is one of our products. It ingests about 30,000 different news sources daily. It has well over 1.3 billion articles in it. We take that data and we sell it both directly via user interface as well as via API to the world's largest banks, consulting companies, pretty much every company in the world consumes that data. We have a whole set of products in this space, products around risk and compliance reports, products around flash news, and then there's Dow Jones Media Group. Dow Jones Media Group's made up of a whole bunch of other really interesting publications, Barron's Magazine, MarketWatch.com, Mansion Global, and Doug's gonna tell you a little bit about what some of these products do and how we operate them from a CloudFront perspective. The other context on Dow Jones is probably more important to most of you is our usage of cloud. So as a 135-year-old enterprise, you think we'd probably be relatively late to the public cloud party. Most of our peer sets were. Well, back in 2013, Dow Jones made a pretty huge bet and decided to move 75% of our compute footprint to Amazon. And that decision was not 75% of the digital footprint. It wasn't 75% of the new stuff. We wanted to move 75% of everything. And at the time, right now, that seems, okay, people are doing that. But in 2013, people were not doing that. It was considered to be a relatively audacious thing. Some of the firms out there said must be a bit of a marketing stunt. Well, we're a news company. We, we don't make marketing stunts around tech. We wanted the agility. We wanted the scale. We wanted to get out of operating data centers. And we also wanted for our consumer publications the ability to be able to serve content everywhere quickly and change it quickly. And I can tell you about four years later on the journey, we've done pretty good. Probably about 65% of our compute power is in the cloud, almost all of our consumer content, a lot of our enterprise systems, a lot of those big iron B2B systems. We're heavy users of a lot of serverless technology. We're using containers, doing all kinds of cool stuff. But I think we really want to focus in the discussion on CloudFront, and I'll hand yeah. off to Doug I mean, to talk a little bit about. I think it's going to be interesting. Well, wow, that's a little loud. Um, I think it's going to be interesting because we were one of the early adopters of the cloud, one of the original properties that moved out. Uh, and you'll see some of the properties here that we moved out with. You'll recognize some of them, some of you won't. Uh, some of them you won't recognize because you're not in Japan or you're not in London. Uh, but you're, of course, recognize the Wall Street Journal. You recognize Barron's, probably. Uh, FN London's are one of our London's uh, as in London. It's eFinancial News, what used to be eFinancial News. Um, private Equity News is another product for high-end. Um, most of these products have an interesting demographic in the fact that they're mostly subscription-based and advertising-based, so it's a little different. Um, we also have some other properties that are entirely advertising-based. Um, another interesting thing about this is we're going to talk about it as we go through it is, okay, we started off uh, differently. There's a lot of different products on this group, 
And really, we're using a lot of the same architecture, a lot of the same deployment, a lot of the same model. I could take an architecture diagram from one of these and use it in any of the properties, and it really doesn't change much, um, which is nice in the fact that um, we make a change, we can leverage it everywhere pretty quickly. Um, it also means that we can still innovate, right? We have a bunch of teams, we have a bunch of teams in, input to this process, and it allows us to have one team experiment too before we roll it out to everything else. So, um, okay. This is what our basic model looks like in one region. Uh, one thing you're gonna hopefully in this conversation learn about us is we really don't treat a region like other people treat a region. We consider it more like a data, like other people consider a data center or a DZ. Um, there's many reasons for this, but a lot of them have to do with a little hurricane called Sandy. Um, we had some problems in our initial footprint in our data center from our two locations. Uh, and after that uh, fun, uh, we decided that anything we did would be entirely separate, meaning if we have a failure in one of these data centers, the other one doesn't know. Um, so we treat a region like a data center. You'll notice that if you look at this diagram, you will see that we have AWS Shield in front. We have Amazon CloudFront. Uh, we are using their certificate management from AWS. Um, we have ALBs, and we have EC2 instances, which also in the future could be Docker containers or, or Kubernetes or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the interesting thing about this is when we move to the cloud, the only thing that's really left is the code on that EC2 instance. Uh, everything else has really changed. Um, we went out with Elastic Load Balancers, which is the original load balancers. We had our own certs. We didn't use CloudFront. We used somebody else. And we didn't have AWS Shield in front of us. So in the time since we've moved, we've changed all that. And pretty easily, actually. It hasn't been too painful. So that's something to keep in mind. When you, once you move to the cloud, don't be afraid to change things out. Um, I have a couple general rules. Um, I don't try anything on a big site first. You try them on a small site first. I'm not afraid of new ideas, and you shouldn't be either. And don't be afraid of the cloud. So advanced shield. So let's get back to Shell. So before we go um, too deep into sort of how we architect this CloudFront, we have to talk about why. Why did we pick Shield? Why did we go to CloudFront? We've obviously been running digital properties for a long, long time. And there are a lot of vendors out there that helped us do that. Well, first, we had a rise in DDoS attacks. And you know, it was very much focused on whether it was HTTP floods or UDP floods. It was happening on a recurring basis. And both on-premise and even when we first went to Amazon, we were able to scale out to a large extent. One of the most interesting examples of an attack would be we kept seeing application-level SQL injection attacks that actually would result in an effective DDoS because they'd go and overwhelm some piece of infrastructure behind the scenes and DDoS us even when the purpose of the SQL injection attack was not to shut us down, it was to find a way in, discover if IDs could be reused, look for passwords, et cetera, et cetera. The, the pain point with this was never how do we scale out of it. It was as we start, start to creep up, how reactive could we be, how could we shut it down, and how could we not run way in excess capacity to keep us from having to go and have, have a big standby infrastructure. So mitigation for us started on-premise, right? We used to run our sites on-premise, and even when we first went out, many of our sites would still route back to on-premise and be delivered from there. And on-premise, you could buy pretty large firewalls. In fact, our current firewall set does a great job of DDoS mitigation. But at the end of the day, they can only scale so far. It can never scale against a big enough attack, and you're stuck building really large pipes that go well beyond daily traffic for what region? reason. So cloud routed. 
This is what many companies are out there using. There are a bunch of providers who do this. Independent of where you're based, independent of who your provider is, there are a bunch of third parties who will provide you with cloud route infrastructure. The problem, that, well, the first thing this solved for us was we got away from our large CapEx on on-premise, which was great. We got away from having to sort of maintain that big stack. But we immediately realized we'd lost a bunch of visibility and control. When it was coming through our on-premise environment, we could see what was happening in relative real time. We had good management on the firewalls. We could go and make quick decisions. Now we're working with a third party, and what we found is the particular third party we were working with, they were an amazing black box. So when things went well, we were happy. We didn't need to understand anything. But when things went wrong, we'd be like, we need to make a change. Let's bring the professional services team in. We want to self-serve that change. Our customers don't usually want to self-serve changes. Well, we're not your typical customer. We want to be able to make changes. We would take less functionality if we control our own destiny. And that became a really painful problem to the point where even the engineering teams were frustrated. Of course, the operations teams were frustrated during SEVs. And I'd say the last bit would be we kept finding amazing incompatibilities in our partners in the cloud routed world where, okay, we bought their new DDoS mitigation product. Oh, it doesn't work well with their WAF. It obfuscates the IPs so that when you're attacked, you can't shut the IPs down the DDoS mitigation product. You have to do it in the WAF side which maybe requires this extensive change process. Things that maybe don't make a lot of sense to the self-serve Amazon world, that was a major pain point for us. So off to cloud native, right, and off to Shield. We jumped onto Shield because we realized that with the level of work we are doing in Amazon, it just made sense to go to a single partner and have a single throat to choke when we had challenges. There was no more pointing fingers at this is coming from here, this is coming from there. We wanted a self-service portion. And I'll say with the Shield team, we were an early beta customer um, we had a small subset of engineering team that was working with them very early on for some of our smaller sites. And when we came here last year at reInvent and sat down and talked to them, their level of openness and willingness to engage with us just sort of blew us away. There was nothing hidden under the covers. We understood the warts, we understood the capabilities, and that really was important to us to understand what we were getting and what we weren't. And we did have a bit of a debate. Are we losing a couple bits of functionality here and there? And we realized it didn't matter to be able to control our own destiny. So that's sort of what led us down the path of course, it's performed well. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here talking. It's gone well for us. Pricing has been very competitive. What's interesting is for, mo for most companies, pricing is a big reason to go and look at using a native cloud provider. It wasn't for us. For us, it was functionality. It was features. It was simplicity. But the pricing has been a good story as well. I won't go into that here, but I'll hand it back to Doug and Lee and take us through the details. As I said, originally, we started off very differently. Same general architecture model, but we did start off differently. Um, we started off with another CDN provider. Um, we had some incidents, um, and one of the things that was nice, and I'm not trying to sell Amazon, one of the things that was nice is when we did have one of those incidents, we got Amazon on the phone, even though we were using one of the other CDN providers, who we won't mention by name, uh, and they actually did get on the phone and try and help us. Um, they were limited in what they could do, um, because we had the other CDN in front of us, um, but they did try and help and identify stuff. We also had fun stuff going on, um, and originally, before we had uh, CloudFront, the logs took a long time to get to us. That, took a, a, that caused some problems with security and with the developers trying to find out what was going on. Uh, you get it pretty quickly on CloudFront, which is very nice. Um, the support's good. You don't have to do, in my opinion, you don't have to do as much to deploy a change. Uh, you don't need as much expertise to deploy a change. Um, when you want to spin up a new site, it's a little easier, in our opinion, or at least in my opinion. Um, that said, it is less powerful um, than the other CDN we were using. 
Um, so it's based on, and we still do use that CDN for some of our static content, but I won't go into a lot of detail on that. Um, so one of the things that really moved us, as I said, was support, their willingness to help us out, and just their openness, as Sean said. Um, so we use CloudFront to distribute our traffic, and we're going to get into some details on that. And as I mentioned before a little bit with Sandy, we had some issues. Um, we ended up in a situation where we had two data centers. In one data center, we had some of our services up. This is a simplified model. In the other data center, we had our sites up, and the two couldn't talk. Um, we had a highly redundant link that failed. <laughs> Hence, moving to the model where we always have two of everything that's independent of everything. Um, so. So some of the things that we've learned along the, along the road that hopefully uh, will be useful to you guys. Um, we always use SSL to origin now for our newer stuff. We still have legacy stuff, which I'm sure a lot of you in the room have, that is still back without SSL. But that's security, and we do that even without stuff we're doing with credit cards just for security's sake. And it's a good practice. And it's a lot easier when you're using CloudFront and, uh, and the certificate management from AWS. Um, we do use different domains for static content, and you're asking, why do we still do that? Uh, because we have a lot of IE11 customers. Um, we're hoping to change that in the future. Um, we use security groups. We try and keep the options limited. Um, we have some wrappers and tools that we use to make it easier on people deploying uh, new stacks. Um, we do believe in auto-scaling, alarming. And one thing about that is we've changed our model a little bit over the years. When we were in the data center and before we started moving to the cloud, everything went through operations. And operations would be notifying the developers first. In our world, it's a mix. If somebody calls in, our operations staff pings us. Otherwise, we get notified first. We have warning alarms going out before there's a problem. Um, we try and monitor things and say, hey, this is getting a little hot. Do we need to add boxes? You know, it, does, this, does this region not look good? Should we manually fail it over? That's, that stuff is starting, hopefully, before we have a real problem where something goes out. Um, and that's a good policy, actually, to have. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get operations involved, but it does mean that it's good to get your developers involved, the people who actually wrote the site. Um, we have a couple different strategies, generally, that we use for how we deal with what we call DR and live failover. As, you, as I've said, we have multiple regions, and we're always generally running in one region, have one region to back up. That's actually the least common of our models. Our most common model is actually the second one, which is live live in multiple regions. Um, for our more important sites, what we call our crown jewels, we actually do a lot of live live, and we have a cache backup. So we may personalize or target our content from the server uh, based on you coming in. Um, but if things fail, we have a static copy. So if both our regions fail, for instance, or for our homepage, you would get a, stack, a static generic content, a copy of our content. You'd get, a you'd get a heavily cached ugly site for our articles. The idea is that no matter what, we don't want to serve you a 502 oops page, which if anybody ever saw the news a couple years ago, we actually served. Um, we try and avoid that. Um, so we've gotten a little more redundant. Um, we've actually even increased the number of our section pages and have static backups over the last couple months. So. And, and our goal is, you, you can never be 100% up, but our goal is to limit the damage when you're down. Um, and our, our end state goal, we hope, is to have a situation where most people don't notice that we've gone down. It just may not be as good as an experience, but it's still a, a WHJ experience, a Barron's experience, an FN London experience. 
uh, a China WHDA experience. Um, we do use AWS certificate management. If you are using CloudFront and you are using AWS, you should use it. Um, it's free, but we'll get into that in a little detail. Uh, and we do use CloudFront locks. So, uh, Certificate management. Uh, the first line says a lot. It's free. Uh, and I would highly suggest you use it. Um, it also updates your CloudFront instance and your ALBs, um, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, if anybody's ever had the experience of having their certificate expire on their site, um, try and put an end to that. Uh, it, you can put an end to it. I suggest you do. Um, I, even our security guys love it. I mean, it takes it out of their hands. They had to approve all these certs. They had to worry about how are they renewing? Is the person still here who owned it? You know, all those kind of things. And it takes it out of their hands. Um, it's easy to request. Um, the only thing that's a little weird is if you're using load balancers, you sort of have to request them both. You know, if you're trying to go directly to a load balancer and you have a backup, you, you have to request from both regions. Um, you can also import a, a certificate. So you can still manage it there even if you didn't get it there, um, though I suggest you get it from them. Um, and it's, it's just made our lives a lot easier, as I said, uh, from the developers, from what the SAs were, our DevOps people, our security people, it's made our lives so much easier. So if you get nothing else out of that, use your certificate management. I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about CloudFront versus going directly to the load balancer. Don't do number two. Um, if I, if I, that's another thing, if you take anything away, uh, don't go directly to load balancer because at some point you're going to need CloudFront anyway for something you need to do. Um, basically, CloudFront gives you more capabilities. Um, it allows you to split stacks and pass around to different load balancers. Um, you can also front you know, S3, uh, gives you some role separation, and it's just another layer of protection. Um, I know some people do that, and we've done it in the past, but it's, it, it's getting back, and as you can tell from a lot of what you've seen, we're not into single points of failure. We hate them. Um, and it just leaves a single point of failure when you do that. So, um, Some of the nice features of CloudFront. Um, it's stable. It's easy to use. We've been using it for a while. Um, we started off using it, as uh, Shaun said, on a lot of our smaller sites. Um, we started off, uh, at least in my group, we started off using it a little bit in Japan. Uh, then we started to use it for our new uh, eFinancial news site, FN London. Um, then we started to move it for WSJ. WSJ was more interesting. Uh, a little background and something we did wrong. Um, just hopefully people will learn from that or something that was, if I had to do it over again, I'd do differently. Um, we actually moved to SSL before we moved to CloudFront. Um, that probably caught, I shouldn't say probably, that cost us time. Um, we ended up doing a lot of professional services with another CDN provider. Um, we went through a lot more pain. Um, we should have moved to CloudFront first. And when we did Barron's, we did. Um, so. Just hopefully uh, that'll be useful to some people. Um, there are some limitations on CloudFront. Uh, the number of routes and patterns you can use is limited to 50. You can ask for more. They'll probably shoot me for saying that. Um, it does pool your SSL connections, so basic stuff. Um, we heavily believe in DR. Um, we're a news site. Uh, it's our reputation. If we can't get the content to the user, um, that's bad. We are not paranoid. We do get attacked, as Sean will tell you. Um, we may be crazy, but we're not, we're not paranoid. Uh, <laughs> people are out to get us. Um, we always have to have extra capacity around in case somebody hits us. Uh, hence why we got into Shield. 
and hence why we're concerned about auto-scaling and using those things. But I do want to get a little into something we're doing with Route 53, and I'm going to pass it to Lee in a little bit to talk about uh, in more detail. But basically, we leverage Route 53 to control where and what stack we're going to. So basically, we have generally two regions up uh, using multiple AZs. We direct traffic to both um, on our more critical sites. We also have a available DR site. There's a static either S3 copy or another copy of, a, of the site um, that acts as DR that's heavily cached. Um, in most situations, using this process, we actually automatically fail over to the DR site. Um, there are those instances which are what I consider worse to some degree is when we get a partial failure and, the site, and that domain doesn't entirely fail and then we manually move it over. But using Route 53, we can do that in about a minute. Um, and that's actually saved us a couple times um, from mistakes on deployments or us causing a spike or somebody else trying to attack us. Um, and that, that's important, especially on the media site. Uh, and we do have a console option to do it. And I'm going to pass to Mike to Lee so he can go into more details. Okay. Can you hear me? Um, yeah, so he's mentioned a lot of um, cool features that we have that mostly we implemented ourselves um, at a high level. Um, the Route 53 feature, um, we call it site control. It just gave it a brand name. Um, it's basically a nicer UI on top of what Route 53 normally does for you. Um, the Amazon console is pretty cool, but it's it's makes it, it doesn't really hide a lot of the complexity. Like if you go into Route 53, if anyone's used the console for Route 53, you can get lost pretty quick. Um, especially if you're doing failover and and um, aliasing and all that. So we basically wrote a tool on top of that um, that lets you, in a very nice methodical way, define primary origins, one, two, or three of them, depending on how many regions that um, that page is supported by. Um, and then also do failovers and, and weight them so you can actually have two or three tiers of failover. Um, we actually have a reduced capability site that fall, fails over from the home page first, um, and it looks just like the real page. And then we actually have a third tier, which is basically, you know, in case of emergency break glass, it'll go to another um, version. And they're really just buttons that you push. And like Doug said, in about a minute, the DNS resolver picks up the change, and coming through CloudFront, since CloudFront's making the DNS request to find the right origin, if the first two origins are sick, it'll go back to the, uh, you know, the primary origins are sick, it'll go to the, the fallback. And then if we suspend that for whatever reason manually, or we could manually suspend one region, for example, it'll cascade down to the next, uh, the next level of failover. Um, so that's really just Route 53 out of the box, but with kind of all the complexity of the, the console UI taken out of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really what it is. It, the two diagrams here basically show, for example, two regions, say, you know, west and east. Um, and site control in uh, concert with CloudFront will try to do geolocation and weighting and try to distribute the load to the proper region um, for each request. And it's really, again, that's really just a Route 53 feature, like I said, that we've wrapped with a nicer UI. Um, and that's why when, what Doug said is most of the time we have an outage sometimes people don't even know. For example, if a deployment goes bad in Oregon and the app crashes, nobody even knows about it because site control will do the keep alive to Oregon, it'll fail, 
and it will stop sending traffic to Oregon. All the traffic will go to Virginia. Virginia will scale up. We'll get alerts, redeploy Oregon. Once Oregon's healthy, site control keep alive will detect that Oregon's healthy and send traffic back to it. Um, and unfortunately, that happens a little more than we'd like, but it's, it's routine. So you don't actually have any user impact, which is the, the end goal, of course. Um, so ALBs. Um, we have a deployment platform that orchestrates deployments. It creates the ELBs, security groups, ASGs, launch configuration, uh, you name it. Um, I won't go into details about that. Uh, but ELBs compared to ALBs are, are very simple. So with ALBs, um, they added a lot more components to make them, I guess, more future-proof. Um, so we spent some time um, you know, rebuilt, re rewriting our orchestration uh, to generate, to, to produce ALBs uh, for the stacks when they're, when they're spun up. Uh, the main benefit, actually, other than WebSockets, which actually there's a lot of use cases where you have a vendor. We actually have a vendor for commenting. They need uh, WebSockets. Um, and it, Classic ELB didn't have that. So that was actually one of our uh, drivers. But in addition, what clinched it for us uh, was that all the new security features around Shield and Shield Advance are never going to go into ELB Classic. So if you want to keep up with the times, you really have to go to ALBs. And they give us other features that we're not using, like the ability to, to route traffic to multiple backends of the load balancer. Uh, we're not using that at the moment. Uh, but primarily, again, for WebSockets um, and the new security features. Um, yeah, this is pretty much what I said. <laughs> um, yeah, WebSocket support, uh, improve, basically, ALBs are going to have new features. ELBs are going to get no new features. So, you know, at this point, if you're starting off, don't even consider classic ELBs um, unless you need pure network uh, uh, balancing. There's more features than that, but those are the ones that are key yeah. to us. Yeah, and this is basically what I just told you. WebSockets, uh, inc improved security management, since it's any uh, Shield or DDoS feature of the ELB uh, will only be in the new um, application load balancer, not in the classics. Um, yeah, there was actually uh, an interesting uh, pitfall, and we had two or three apps hit it. Um, Bad URLs with the classic ELB, they would normalize out repeated forward slashes, and it would just work. And nobody realized that they were generating bad URLs in the front end. The ALBs uh, enforce that. Uh, so that's just a little uh, tip uh, to look ahead. So if you have bad URLs, make sure they fix them. Otherwise, the ALB will flag them as a 400, which they are. Um, the ELBs just kind of let it go through. Um, you can actually attach multiple certificates to um, an ALB now. So instead of asking for if you host multiple domains on the same endpoint, um, what we'd have to do is say, oh, let's create a new ACM cert with the number of domains plus one, and then reattach it and replace the old one. Now you can kind of treat your groups of domains if you want and create individual certs. ACM will still refresh them all. Um, but you don't have to keep doing domain plus one, domain plus one. Um, you can basically group them appropriately um, and perhaps even reuse them on other apps that may also be behind the same domains. Um, so that's kind of an interesting feature. Um, Lambda on the Edge. We uh, went live with it in preview. Um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't quite up to, up to what we were using it for, so we backed it out at first. But um, it's got some really cool features. 
Uh, we actually did A-B testing on Barron's. Um, it's kind of a classic uh, example that they give you when, you when you pick up Lambda on the edge. It basically puts the routing decision closer to the user so that your application, for example, you may have two completely independent applications. This is, this is actually our new Barron's homepage on the left and our old one on the right. The old one we considered legacy. Like, I don't even go into how legacy it was. We didn't want to touch it. We weren't going to touch one line of code on it. So A-B testing wasn't going to live there. The new app, we basically didn't want to pollute it with knowing about the old one. So we didn't want B to know about A, and we, didn't, we definitely didn't want A knowing about B. Um, and that was a good application of using it. Uh, we dropped cookie so that once they hit one of those, they stayed on it. Um, again, that's pretty much in the Lambda on the Edge examples. Um, again, along the lines of Route 53, if you've messed with Lambda in the console, it's not the most pleasant experience. Um, and that's a lesson learned. Um, they actually changed part of the requirements in the middle of what we were doing. Uh, you used to be able to connect the latest version of a Lambda on the Edge to your CloudFront rule. And then they changed it, so you had to, have, you had to tag it and only use a tag. So that was interesting. Um, we learned, we picked that up really quick. You know, there's docs, of course, and all that. Um, but again, it was in preview. It was, it was just out of preview, I think, and they changed that feature. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a t completely appropriate place to do that, as opposed to, for example, spinning up a new stack that only did A-B testing, and then you have more and more layers within your application stack for a short period of time. Basically, we could put this in once we were comfortable with the users giving us feedback about the new homepage design. We just pulled it out, sent everybody the new homepage, and we were done. So the Lambda on the Edge was literally like 20 lines of code, and, it, and then it was gone. Um, there's a lot of other really good things that we have in mind for doing here. Um, one of the restrictions was that you couldn't do TCP connections out from a Lambda on the Edge. They just added that, uh, actually just a week ago. Uh, I think uh, for the incoming request, which means you could do, for example, an auth callout. You could chop up a cookie, validate it before you get to your app layer. That's actually something that, like I said, I just learned about it last week. That, that could be interesting. Um, because again, authentication is something you want consistent across, like I said, we have dozens of apps behind the website. Um, and they all have a common piece of code, but updating that code means you have to deploy it to different stacks. If you can put it here, um, that'd be a huge benefit. Um, and that's just something that, like I said, that feature just came out. So that's one other thing about AWS. They're always surprising you. You're always like, oh, man, I can't do that. And then you go up to somebody and say, yeah, you can't do that, and land on the edge. And then somebody says, yeah, you can. Last week, I just got a mail. Um, so we're using it in a relatively limited way right now. Um, using it for some URL rewriting that um, the back-end platform required. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to do a lot more with it in the future. Um, we do plan to use it a lot more in the future, especially yeah. for A-B testing. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is pretty much what I went over. Yeah, this is just a, this is actually uh, sort of an adapter to a legacy platform. We, uh, back in the day, we had load balancers on-prem, I don't know, like 15, 16, 17 years ago. Long time ago. Um, we ran through two, Hourpoint, Netscaler. Anyway, um, so way back in the day, somebody said, hey, when we want to, send the client IP from the actual endpoint to the app. So let's throw a header in called client-IP. Sounded great. I don't think there was a standard for X forwarded for or anything like that, right? Um, well, we still have some of those apps running somewhere. And because CloudFront is now the first point of contact, that's the only place where you know what the IP is. And again, 
You're not necessarily going to go in and hack up all your old code from 15, 20, 10, 10, 15 years ago. So this is a good place to basically shim in uh, the client IP header using what was already set by CloudFront for the X forwarded for header. Um, and this is, again, this is just a few lines of code. Um, and, but it, it solved the, a specific problem for a specific use case that we had for something that was legacy. Um, let's see. The A-B testing, handling more complex routing rules. We actually just, just learned a few more things that we can do uh, to help us move more of our rules into CloudFront. Uh, yesterday, old cookie cleanup. Yeah, we can, you can do all kinds of weird things with cookies, of course, because that's the first point of contact. You can do redirects, uh, things like that. Um, that's it. Any questions? Yeah, we, we did want to leave a decent amount of time for questions because we figured that would be more productive. Yeah, go ahead. Right. What is the use case that you're enabling people from a site? Uh, use case, well, we have. Please, why don't you just repeat the question in case? Yeah, so the question is what would be a good use case for WebSockets? Um, usually the WebSockets come to you. So for us, um, we have, a couple, we have a, an old platform that does some live pulling of data, quotes, or news, um, and that could be a good use case for it, where the browser's sitting there and, and you want to pull. Live data, so you're updating quotes or updating. Yeah, a and, and that was actually upgraded to support it, and so that's right. one of the things we wanted to implement. Yeah, that's that's future, but that that means that's going to enable us to do that. Um, the other one is we have a third-party vendor for commenting, and um, we liked everything about the vendor. We threw it in, and they said, "Oh, we only support a WebSocket interface from the browser," and we said, "Hmm." <laughs> So we, that, that was actually our, our main drive to switch from ELBs to the classic ones to the ALBs. Okay. Yes. Uh, Lambda on the edge charge is about, I think it's a cost per 100 milliseconds, I think. Lambda on the edge, fundamentally, you want everything you're doing there to be really fast, which is, I believe, why they originally said no outgoing TCP connections. So once you, once you start giving a programmer TCP connections at the, at the edge, you're asking for latency. So they've added that feature. I, you can still define a timeout. So if your Lambda doesn't respond within a certain amount of time, you know, just go to the origin without any, you know, any modifications. So in, um, uh, well, in CloudFront, yeah, your routing rules are based on what they call behaviors, and there's patterns. Um, it really depends on how often that pattern is invoked. So if you have slash for your homepage, the lambda attached to it would only get invoked when somebody goes to your homepage. And if you have a lambda attached to slash article, it'll only get invoked when somebody hits an article. So yeah, That's you up to, to you. That yeah. Basically, it comes down up to you. You choose what pass you want to apply your lambda rules to. That's going to drive what your cost is. Yes. Uh, it's more flexible. Well, I'm, I'm not understanding what you mean by changing your header. So if you, if, if you just wanted to, yep. um, I thought this was for, for your A-B testing of your other site, right? Yeah, that's one way to you, do it. No, that the A-B testing was not changing the header. That was actually making a, uh, an implementation where we keep a sticky reference to each page. So basically, if we had somebody come in, you came in. Um, the first time, you would get one of those pages, and what we were doing is using Lambda to also drop a cookie to tell us, okay, the next time you come in, 
also go to this one. So Lambda was doing the direction to each stack. There were yeah. two independent stacks. One's a Java stack, one's a Node stack. And based on who you were, we were directing you to that A-B test and also making sure it was consistent. That was one use case. The other use case that Lee was going into was to apply a header. That yeah, was the example. I, I think what you're referring to is you meant the navigation in the header, like the link to the homepage? Yeah, no, I just thought that okay. you know, if you wanted to go to you know, the, your new site, right? You well, wasn't, just, this was just one page. This was okay. the homepage. Okay. Um, so we were only redesigning the homepage. And okay. we wanted to stay sticky so people wouldn't get you know, thrashed back and forth between right. the radically different designs. The code um, was not a sample of this. Yeah, one, one early approach was to redirect you in the browser to another URL, yeah. but that meant people could just start sharing the new homepage and the navigation. Everything would just involve more 302s and stuff like that. So that was more complicated actually than just routing it through the Lambda and switching. Um, Though actually it did redirect you. It's just the cookie yeah. made sure that if you came back to the homepage, it would redirect yeah. you to the new one. Yeah. So actually we, we did do that. But again, you can't just change the link in the nav bar because again, the nav bar on different pages, bookmarks wouldn't be affected, things like that. Makes sense. Um, so it had to be sticky with the cookie and the Lambda could see the cookie, set the cookie, and redirect you if you were in the target group. Okay, thank yeah. you. Um, I agree that ACM is really cool, but <laughs> Uh, there's the piece about um, having to auth the the request. So you've got a dev who puts in the, the certificate request, yes. and then an email gets generated. Yes. How are you guys doing that? You just uh, have a knock group well, or something? We have a Charlie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a queue called Charlie? Yeah, no. Uh, uh, he well, optimally, <laughs> you know, since <laughs> requesting a certificate for your domains is very, you know, it has to be authenticated, right? Um, you know, we have a distro list that is hooked up to the who is record, I guess you could say. So they, they, do, they try to find out who to send the approval email, and then you have to click on it, go to a web page, click again, and it's for actually each domain. So um, that's another reason the domain plus one approach. Charlie has to keep, if we go from six domains to seven, seven to eight, seven, eight to nine, and we keep adding more domains to the one cert, he has to get eight emails and approve all eight when we get to that point. Whereas if we group them and we go from two to three, and you know the, the core domains are, are, are just a locked insert, then he only has to approve three. It really comes down to your workflow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's sent to a distro list. There's three or four people who get the mail. Everybody else ignores it unless Charlie do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's a typical approach. I, I will say that even though it sounds really obvious, we found, we found this historically, if you ever have it not go to a distro list, yeah. you're set yourself up for failure. Because yeah, yeah. someone is gonna leave take a long vacation, whatever. Yep. Doesn't really matter if they're a 24 by seven person. They're hit by a car. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Lottery. We have so, ours go to a mailbox and that's the, probably the wrong approach because people just kind of ignore it and assume someone uh, else will handle it. Yeah, yeah, this is more of a distro list so it goes to everybody who we consider approval worthy for that. Yeah. Yeah. We got somebody over here? So just to ask a DDoS question, because this is a lot of time on the actual CDN. Um, having been on the receiving end of a number of Layer 7 uh, DDoS attacks, um, can, can you maybe share with us what, what, uh, you know, what tools were there, what was the process? I mean, picking these guys out of your, of your log stream, it's great that the logs are there faster, but that's still a, a delayed response, right? You want to be looking at traffic live, figuring out what they're doing, where they're coming from, and what rules you can put in place. 
Uh, so can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, what I'd say is, well, maybe fortunately or unfortunately, we haven't seen sort of scale out attacks since we've shifted to CloudFront. We've, we've had elevated traffic in many cases, which could be attributed to potential DDoS, but we've always just seen it sort of scale out and go away. Where we have seen repeated attacks are things like the SQL injection attack that I mentioned, where we see escalating traffic. And then we've been so simplistic as to, uh, we sort of, we've had a couple different hybrid approaches. In one case, we've been taking a lot of that data and dumping it out to uh, Splunk ES and looking for sort of trends there. And we have a SecOps team that's looking at that on a periodic basis. In fact, we recently, for one of our other properties, not consumer, saw a spike in traffic um, that was unexpected, it didn't meet trends. And we went back and were able to react to it and figure out what was happening. What we've done, and I'll say at the most simplistic levels, a lot of it is going back and banning targeted IPs. I think what we've seen with CloudFront is there seems to be uh, pretty good results with the Shield team around just putting in place enough scale that nothing sort of overwhelmed yeah. us yet. On and, and they're very responsive. And, yeah. and the other thing that's nice is our data security team can get to the logs a lot faster than our other provider. So it's been a bit of a cultural change where a year ago, we couldn't depend on logging from the provider, maybe six months ago, because it was generally about a 24-hour wait time. In some cases, maybe 16 to 18. So what we had to do was put a lot of code somewhere within the applications to start capturing data. Or even once during a DDoS attack, we actually started redeploying an application yeah. with shim code to actually go and capture and block. We started data. off in that situation actually using the application logs. Believe me, that's not the way, right way to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And in addition, there's a, there's a premium product called Shield Advance, and you pay an extra amount, and the, what you get is, I think you get more of the AI kind of adaptable model, but you also get a dedicated um, like hotline, if you will. Yeah. So, um, so, so while we blunt and Shield Advance, we, we adopted early on because at our scale, the cost was for us relatively trivial. Yeah. We've been, it has been a little opaque to know when they've done something nice for us and when yeah. just not, we have not been attacked. Our, our best evidence has been we haven't taken an outage from this since we switched over. Now, how much of that is due to decreasing attacks? Well, we definitely see a lot of chatter and traffic where we're being pushed on, and we just don't know if no one's bothered to take the scale of yeah, decline I mean, overwhelmment, not yeah. to encourage that, but that's, that's part of the open question. I'd say having better usage of the logs, though, is one of our roadmap items. How do we go and sort of integrate that into our alarms and mechanisms better? We've done it for targeted IP ranges. We had a peer publication who was attacked by a set of IP ranges who shared that information. We started looking for them, and we saw traffic coming from that three weeks later. We proactively cut them off at the WAF level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Well, for the for the mechanical, the way it's, that's that's the point of the mechanical crop, I guess. And what your your original question was, what kind of reporting and information are you saying? We haven't been mining it. We just haven't seen the pressure and the outages, and it's it's on our do list to better understand. Right, what have they mitigated and where have we just been lucky? Yeah, they, they weren't getting mitigated before, so we were seeing a lot of it and we were doing a lot of mining on it. Uh, now it's more like we're not really seeing them as much. We do see some stuff come through, um, but knock on wood, nothing to the extent that is that it was in the past. Honestly, most of the time it's because the editors just put something really cool in the home. Well, that's okay. And then that, we that, freak out. Okay. We're like, oh my God, why is this going up? Like, no, oh, we, don't, cool we, don't really freak, we don't really freak out anymore. We just say, hey, this is a big jump, this is traffic. It's like, well, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was our big news story. Yeah. Other questions? Thank you. Um, wanted to ask a question about a site control tool. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you're going to contribute to open source or commercialize eventually? Um, 
We could. Uh, I don't want to get into the long story behind uh, the platform it's on right now. It, it's tied to another tool is what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, but it, it's it, essentially, it, it's a, it is really just a UI. The other tool is really an orchestration engine for deploying, and Site Control works with it well, because if you're going to put your app in two regions, uh, Route 53 slash Site Control for us um, is what lets you do a turnkey approach. You basically throw in your Virginia region, you throw in your Ohio region, your Oregon region, um, make sure the keep lives work, and then you can put it behind your CloudFront uh, behavior as an origin. Um, it's actually so we integrated it as a UI, but really it's like a zero data kind of UI, right? It really is just a conduit to orchestrate how to set up the aliases and the right rules and all the little buttons and knobs in, uh, in Route 53. Um, we could consider it. What, what, what I'd say but, is that we wouldn't commercialize it, we'd contribute it if there was interest yeah, that yeah. would take uptake, right? We, we all struggle with, yeah. is this tool something people want to learn about and build their own version of, or do they really want our code and try to play with it? I think we'd be able yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing harmful about it. It, yeah. it just yeah. happens. The reason we haven't is because it's tied into another tool, yeah. and it's just taking it out of the tool is a little bit of a pain. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's something we want to actually do in the long term is take it out of that tool, and then it becomes yeah. easy to... And, and, Dow, and Dow Jones has um, contributed from our news graphics team to our DevOps team, and in different areas, we've contributed different tools, um, either to like the NPM community or you know other places like that. Um, so this would be a good candidate. But like you said, right now, the reason it's not easy to just drop out there as open source um, is that it is, at the moment, tied in with uh, another product that is kind of does something different. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is we've gone through a similar exercise of setting up like a failover regions yeah. and, uh, you know, for disaster recovery, and that would be, and probably felt similar pains with Route 53, so it'd be yeah. cool to see what you guys done. Yeah, I, well, I think we'll it'd be worth an offline that. conversation because we might be able to share it with you yeah, I mean, as a yeah. Yeah. friendly discussion. I mean, basically, all we did is throw two-factor authentication. <laughs> We'd have to restrict it. Oh, it wasn't in there. When that went open source, uh, right tank control wasn't in it at that point, was it? Yeah. I don't know. It was very alpha at that point. <laughs> but no, good feedback. If, if that's interesting, we'll probably make that happen. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious about your, your tool set your requirements and your release process. Ah. You guys have a lot of redundancy, so I'm just this example here. Yeah. Uh, we, we created. Uh, we, repeat the question just okay. for the. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Oh, you want to repeat or I could do it. I, basically, he was asking about our deployment methodology and the way we deploy things. Um, we actually, currently in our area, we have a tool we created um, to deploy our applications. Most of our applications fall into two categories. Uh, most of 95% of them are node applications these days. Um, so we have a common build standard for it, and it actually deploys it to an EC2 instance. Uh, generate, we can create a stack with an ALB. It has permissions layers in it, the two-factor authentication. Uh, we could spend two hours talking about it. Um, that would be a different conference. But that would be a different conference, yeah. and, and we haven't open-sourced it at this point. We've talked about it, but we haven't done it. Um, yeah. it it's something we felt constrained um, by the present. When we started this, we felt very constrained by the options that we could deploy under. Yeah, um, and, for and, them. The, and the fundamental philosophy was to, when we go to an agile model and the teams control their own destiny, the more you have to ask other people for stuff and ask for infrastructure, um, the slower you're going to be. So this, the platform is called Servo. Um, we're actually in the second iteration of it. We basically did it following our old cloud model and then totally redid it to be more of a standalone product. Um, and it basically has security that you can control ingress, egress, um, 
it does the blue-green deployment. This kind of is bread and butter. Um, but it also has logging, which could use a little better, um, could use a little more enhancement, but it supports a basic logging if you're looking for troubleshooting. Um, it, it does basically everything you need, and if you throw site control in front of it, that gives you multi-region support out of the box, if you will. So you go to one place. Um, as long as you have a keep alive that works, the, ELB, the ALB would be happy. Uh, site control will be happy. So there's a very minimum requirement um, for deploying an app in that environment. We do support Docker as well. Um, we started to go down the process in the first iteration of doing uh, PHP. I think we had a Ruby spinoff. Mm -hmm. And then we did Node, of course, was the mainstream. And then we said, all right, screw it. Docker was mature a few years ago. Um, Docker is the other option. And we actually have quite a few um, apps running in Docker mm -hmm. as well. Um, but again, it, it supports microservices really well. Um, any kind of small focused tool that you want to create, you can basically have it deployed in like half an hour and operationally ready in that you can say, I want scale from two to five instances. I can put it in site control. Um, I can put ingress and egress rules on it all in the same place. Um, and you can have a dev, and a dev and a QA and a prod stack and you, you tweak your environments. It, it also, um, if anyone's familiar with it, um, when server was built, it's, it tried to strictly follow the 12-factor app uh, model. Um, and a lot of the decisions of no configuration in your code, reusable package, the same code that you did in dev and QA goes to prod. Um, all the principles, if you look it up, 12-factor app is like, it's like probably a 10-minute read. Um, so it's not one of those like too long, didn't read kind of things, you know. Um, it wasn't a 10-minute but, uh, <laughs> but the, the platform tries to follow that as well as possible because they are really good practices for the cloud. Um, and again, it was cloud first. Everything we do now is cloud first. Yeah, we don't, we, yeah. you know, and not only that, but we do multi-region first. Yeah, and we, we do always do multi-region. Um, we don't do anything that's not multi-region. We don't do anything anymore that's not cloud. We have legacy stuff that's not cloud that we're getting rid of. Yeah. Um, but our groups are all cloud-centric. Mm -hmm. um, most, uh, most of it in my teams use Servo and some of the other teams. Not all the teams do. But even if they don't use that, they, they've come up with a deployment model that's similar in nature. They're trying to abstract a lot of the necessary knowledge from the developers um, to deploy an app and also trying to put some security in place that you know, not everyone can deploy, right? We don't want everybody in the company to be able to deploy, redeploy a right. app, right? Yeah, it has an ownership and a delegation, yeah. you know, who's an owner, who's a user, and who isn't. Yeah. Um, so again, it has like that kind of basic. Right. We have the concept of, you know, developers own the code. I mean, we, you know, yeah. they're the owners of the application. Um, and it, that, also, that also allows us to break the, have different authentication models too. There's different situations where you might not want the developer to deploy, and that's fine. In our situation, we do, um, yeah. and, but it allows you to do both. But that was because of the tooling in, that was available at the time at AWS, and I haven't seen anything yet that is probably going to take yeah, there, there are some products. I just got a mail yeah. a couple months ago about uh, CodeStar, which is basically write some code. It'll, it'll actually generate stubs, and it'll deploy it for you. Hit a button, answer a bunch of questions. Um, it, it sounds cool. Um, it sounds a little bit shiny, if you will. Um, and, you know, you can do certain things really well. I'm not sure how much you can get under the covers of it. Um, but there, there are other apps that are kind of in the space for what we did. Um, but I haven't seen anything that would replace it where I'd say, hey, guys, let's get rid of Servo and, and do this other thing yet. Um, but, yeah, it was really driven at a team, uh, you know, like he said, operations. Like, the only thing we use operations for are network um, and hard authentication, meaning 
who can actually get in and touch the resources. The, the big delineation below us, the app layer. Yeah. Yeah. The big delineation has been the consumer web properties that are tend to be lightweight node-based apps. Yeah. Goes through this lightweight deployment model. Yeah. And then for our heavier backend apps, right, we have a more classic CI/CD pipeline yeah. to go and deploy that. Um, and there's a, a lot of delineation. So you see, and there, while those teams are also cloud first, they have a lot more legacy they have to think about and connect back to. So they tend to have a lot more complexity in their. And there's models. different build cycles. Like we we build and deploy all the time. Um, they have enterprise customers, they can't do that. So yeah. you have different rules, business rules about when you can deploy things. Uh, ours are sort of reversed. We actually deploy during the day generally um, because it really doesn't matter if we deploy at night or not. We've still got a lot, bunch of customers. We got more eyes on it. We got yeah. more eyes on it. We have multiple regions we can fail between. We can back out very quickly. Um, so it's actually more beneficial for us to deploy during the day than it is at night. Yeah. But that's not the case on all of our properties. Yeah. Um, well, so Docker is a pretty uh, portable kind of framework. So um, it actually fits within our servo. So you have two flavors. Either you have Node, in which case the Node package gets packaged up, sent off to S3, and when, when you get a scale-up event um, or you're doing a blue-green deployment, basically the same thing in this case, um, it pulls down and just drops it on the, on the machine and runs. Um, just to be the yeah. AMI. I mean, I'll, I'll Docker, with Docker, the Docker daemon is there. It down, it'll download the Docker image that was also tarred up and packaged, and it'll run on the same EC2. And so everything about Docker or a Node app in our framework, it's really the same. It's just you either have a container or you have a Node app. But everything outside of that from uh, security and uh, configuration is the same. But that's, that's us. There's other people doing other things to deploy Docker. Right. Yeah, right. but so on the consumer apps that we've talked about uh, primarily, uh, that's that's the model. Docker versus not Docker to us is equivalent, and we run them on EC2s at the moment. But again, we're always looking to improve. We could have a model where you could deploy to ECS or something of that sort. We just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, so, so the B2B teams who aren't here yeah. use, use ECS more heavily. Right. Yeah. Um, they're using a fundamentally right. different model for orchestration, whereas you guys are using your classic orchestration model. Yeah, and, and, and model, it really, the re, well, some of the reasons behind that is because there hasn't been a cost benefit for us at the moment. If that yeah. changes, we would switch. Um, yes, right now, the Docker is just a variant of what platform you're going to deploy through the servo app that you create, or the servo stack. And if you have a Docker file, it knows it's Docker, and it deploys it as Docker to the EC2. If you don't, it treats it as a node app and starts it up as a node app. But otherwise, everything outside of that is equivalent as far as the UI and the configuration and all that. So. Well, my, microservices is really, I mean, it's, it's one of those buzzwords that either you use it right or you just use it as a buzzword. Uh, microservice is just basically being agile and reducing your impact radius so that if you have a tool that does one thing really well, which is kind of the node methodology to begin with, like if you're gonna create a node package or app, make it do one thing and one thing really well. So a microservice to me is really just something that does that one thing and does it really well, it encapsulates one data store and does everything about that data store as opposed to something that tries to solve the whole world's problems. Um, I wouldn't call our page generators a microservice because no. they have to understand all the different article types all the different page layouts. That's not a microservice. We use React. It's, it's a big thing. Um, that, microservices really more for tools and for smaller, like a Slack bot, I would call that a microservice. Because the whole thing could be 200 lines of code. 
and it's all about orchestra. Uh, it's actually it's more about you know connecting the different components, Slack, and you know the service and whatever it's trying to do in the back end. Look up conference rooms, you know, look up whatever things like that. Um, so to me, a microservice is just creating a small tool without all the extra overhead um, that does that one thing really well. So it's just another way to use the platform. There's nothing special about it, really, yeah. except what you do with it. And that, that's our custom implementation. As I said, other people yeah. use other things to deploy Docker images if that's what you're interested in. Um, well, he was asking about ed editors are changing content and they want to see it. Uh, yeah, we basically, with the servo model, um, we'll have a live stack, we'll have a, a staging stack, and we'll have what we call a pre-live stack or a preview stack. Yeah. Um, it's hooked up to some of the same data sources as the, per as the uh, live stack, but if an editor wants to see what a page looks like before the public, it, it'll switch over and pull the the for what's called prepub data, yeah. basically, um, and render using the same exact app, the yeah. same exact page layout, but with that content in it before they uh, before they. I, I think it was asking, is there a WYSIWYG tool out there to actually format the article? No, that's really what they do. Yeah, no, no, um, but yeah we won't get into the editing platform no, because that's, that's another. That's a that's a different discussion, but basically yeah. we're more of in a model right now. We have a mix where we have a templating approach. We have a, a third-party tool that does the editing. They could choose a number of different templates. They also have a lot of freedom to put custom graphics into yeah. and have custom experiences too. Right. Um, we want to improve upon that. Right. Yeah. So CMS is a big, pretty major transformation area right now. The net answer would be no. There's not really a WYSIWYG. Right. No. no. It's not a limitation of the front end as much as our, our, our present yeah. CMS. Yeah. But but the way they solve that, and we've done this a long time, even on prem, is they basically publish the, the content to a sandbox prepub area. And they run essentially the same code, but against the sandbox, so they can yeah. see what it looks like before they make it public, whether it's an article or the front page well, or the markets page or whatever. One thing to remember in our business is even though there is a lot of great content that's just digital, the bulk of the content is targeting both digital and print. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's true. being built considering both platforms, and then you look at how it presents in the digital side and how it presents in the digital. Yeah, and right. even two different side. users may not get the same article view in our world. That's true. Um, because yeah, we, we have need, different we levels. So. We didn't even get into firewall. Yeah. That's another thing. Yeah. Oh, not firewall, paywall. So, yeah. I, I, that's sure. another issue. <laughs> we have we have a pretty we have a pretty major CMS reason. So we can talk about that offline if you'd like to yeah. pop up afterward to tell yeah. about it. Yeah, it doesn't involve CloudFront at all, yeah. really. Great. Well, I think we're timing out, but yep. we'll yep. be around for a few seconds. minutes um, if there's more questions. Unless they kick us out of the room. Uh, they'll probably give us a few minutes. Thank you all for coming. Hope it was useful. <laughs>